This episode of Motley Fool Answers is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. When it comes to investing education, one size doesn't fit all. TD Ameritrade helps you learn whether you're just starting out or an elite trader. Choose from articles, videos, webcasts, and more. Visit tdameritrade.com education. Member SIPC. Also, thanks to Sprout Social for supporting Motley Fool Answers. Sprout Social offers businesses an intuitive platform to help build meaningful relationships at scale on social. To learn how your brand can create real connection, visit SproutSocial.com today. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined as always by Robert Brokam, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. Hello, bro. Hello, Allison. In this week's episode, oh, market volatility was just all the rage this last week, and so we have Morgan Housel here to soothe your rattled soul. And bro is going to talk about something. I don't know what it's going to be. It's a surprise for everyone. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. So, bro, what's up? Retirement accounts are up. Yay! That sounds that's like good up. news. It is good news. And we know this because Fidelity has released recently its quarterly analysis of the more than 30 million IRAs, 401ks, wow. and other retirement accounts that investors have with Fidelity. So it's a pretty good survey of what people have and how they're doing. And this latest report is particularly interesting because not only do they provide the most recent numbers as of the end of the first quarter of this year, so March of this year, but they provide the numbers from March from 10 years ago, which was right when the stock market bottomed after the Great Recession. So we not only get to see, we all, we've talked before about how well the stock market has done since then, but this report gives us an idea how much better retirement savers are doing since then. So let's dig into six questions about the average retirement saver that this report answers. Number one, how big is it? And of course, I'm talking about 401k account balances reaching $103,700, an all-time high. It's up 8% since the end of 2018, so that first quarter. And to be honest, I was a little surprised at that. I thought it'd be more, because in the first quarter of this year, the S&P 500 was up almost 14%. Plus, people are putting more money into their accounts. But I think the bottom line is, of course, that not everyone is invested completely in the stock market, which is a topic we'll hit on a little later. Um, so, how does that 103700 compared to a decade ago? $46,000 was how much the average person had in their wow, 401k. Wow, okay. So, it's more than doubled. Okay. But again, that, that's good. But again, you might have expected more, given how well the stock market has done. Um, but 401ks are tricky because these averages could include everyone who's been there for 30 years versus and, and someone who's only been there for six months. So they very helpfully broke out the numbers of account, uh, the account balances based on what generation you're part of, as well as for numbers for someone who's actually been participating in the same account for a decade. So if you look at someone who's been participating in the same account for a decade, the average balance is 297000 Versus just fifty-two thousand a decade oh, wow. ago, okay. so it's up four hundred and sixty-six percent. Not too shabby. Very good, very impressive. And just in case you're curious, the average balance for someone who's been investing for ten years: millennials, one hundred twenty-nine thousand; Gen X, two hundred sixty-eight thousand; Boomers, three hundred fifty-seven thousand. Which is good news, especially when you hear stats about the average amount that someone has, especially at that age as they're about to retire. For those who are participating in a 401k and have been saving, they're doing pretty well. All right, so that's how much people have saved if they're actually saving. But what about question number two? What percentage of employees are actually participating in a 401k? 
And the answer to this really depends on whether or not the 401k automatically enrolls people or not. If the plan automatically enrolls you, just once you join the company, you're put in the 401k, 88% of employees participate. If they don't, 52%. Wow. Big difference. Clearly, people need a nudge to sign up for the 401k. And we hear about the retirement crisis and how people haven't saved enough. Obviously, one answer is just to make sure everyone gets put into the 401k. Once you're in there, only 9% of people then change their mind and say, no, I don't want to be in there. Once you're put in the 401k, the vast majority of people stay in it. Well, we're only talking about the people in this country who even have It's a slice of people who actually have access to a 401k. Think of all the people who don't even have access to a 401k, who have to go through so many more hoops to save money for retirement. It's a huge barrier to entry. It really is. Uh, It's it's around a little bit more than half uh, of employees are covered by a work plan, 401k, 403b, or something something, like that, right? Which means almost half don't. Now, you can still choose an IRA, but IRA have lo- IRAs have lower contribution limits. Um, also, you can set up a solo 401k if you're self-employed, but that's kind of a hassle. So having a job with a work plan is a huge, huge benefit. Um, so one thing also that is higher is that the amount you're automatically enrolled in. So a, a little more, a little less than half are automatically enrolling people at 4% or higher, which means that more than half of the employers are automatically enrolling people at less than 4%, which in my opinion is too low. I think you can get away with automatically enrolling people and having them contribute more than that. If they don't like it, they can always change it. But I think that's also another way to be helpful. So number three, how much are people saving? So the average employee is deferring 8.8% to their 401k, Employers are putting another average 4.7% for a total of 13.5%, another all-time high, which is pretty good. We've talked before about how I think really people should be shooting for 15%, and that's if you're starting in your 20s, maybe even your 30s. So before I think, the match, no, the match oh, included, including the match, match okay. included, and that's part of what we've done here at the Fool. If you contribute nine, you get six for that 15. Um, so people probably should be saving a little bit more, but still, this is. This is pretty good news. Yeah. yeah. And now I need to go hop into Namely and double check how much I'm contributing to our 401k. <laughs> so question number four, how are they investing? And this gets back to that question of asset allocation, things like that. The report really celebrated the fact that people are more diversified. So for example, they had this stat saying, only 10% of the people are either 100% in stocks or 0% in stocks. So all in or all out. Compared to 2009, it was 25% of people who were all in or all out. Now, me personally, I think as a relatively aggressive investor and a typical Motley Fool, I'm actually fine being all stocks. So I'm not sure this is a great thing necessarily to celebrate, especially since stocks have done so well over the last decade. But I do think generally diversification is important. And, and the reason people are becoming more diverse is the use of target date funds. Target date fund is just a single mutual fund that owns other mutual funds, mix of stocks, bonds, cash, international stocks, U.S. stocks. And currently, 52% of people with a 401k of Fidelity are exclusively invested in a target date fund, compared to just 16% in 2009. And this also goes back to the automatic enrollment, because for plans that automatically enroll, enroll employees, 90% of those people are being enrolled in a target date fund. I think it's a great solution, especially for the hands-off investor. But 
even the most aggressive allocations do have some cash and bonds. So if you are a more aggressive investor, you might want to fiddle with that a little bit. Yeah, I'm in a target date fund, and I was thinking I need to maybe start contributing to a farther out target date just to maybe get a little bit more aggressive. Yeah. And, it's, and it, it is interesting because we are we just recently on the 401k committee here at the Fool evaluated our target date mm-hmm. funds, and we felt that the ones that we had were too conservative, generally, mm-hmm. and we've replaced them with another set that are more aggressive generally, but they get really conservative right before retirement, yeah. which some people think is good, but it's a debate about exactly what the what they call the glide path should be. So it is pretty complicated. Again, target date funds I think are generally good, but you do want to make sure you have the right ones. All right, two more two more things from the report. Number five: Are retiree wannabes choosing the Roth or the traditional? And the answer for four hundred one ks is overwhelmingly the traditional. Almost ninety percent of people are going with traditional. Only eleven percent are going with Roth. But interestingly, when you look at IRAs, it's different. With the IRAs, fifty-two percent are Roth. So what people are doing is they're using the, four, the traditional for the 401k, but then opening a Roth IRA, which I think makes a ton of sense. I did this for many years. You get the tax diversification and having a little bit of both. Also, generally speaking, people are more aggressive in their IRAs because they can buy individual stocks and things like that. And if you want one account to grow the most, it's the Roth IRA because the distributions are tax-free. You want your tax-free, you want your tax-free account to grow the most. So I thought that was pretty interesting. They also had a, a stat in here that I already said the average 401k account for 103,000, the average IRA 107,000. But when you look at the average total of people of both 401ks and IRAs with Fidelity, the total is over 300,000. And I actually asked, sent them a question like, why is it that the combined is so much higher than the separate? And they said the people with IRAs and 401ks are much more engaged. And they save more. They also tend to be a little bit older, but I certainly think it makes a lot of sense that if you have the money to invest in both. And finally, number six, what made me cry the most? Well, they had a stat on what people do with their 401ks when they leave their job. We've talked about this before. 36% of the people cash out their 401k. They don't roll it over to their next 401k. They don't roll it over to an IRA. They take the money, which means they pay taxes. They pay penalties if they're not 59 and a half, and they miss out on all that future growth. Also makes me sad because I know a lot of people are doing this for reasons they have no choice over. They might have medical bills or something like that, and I certainly have sympathy for that. But please, 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 if you're ever thinking of doing this and you don't need the money, roll it over to an IRA. You're going to save yourself a lot of current bills in terms of taxes and penalties, but you're going to be very grateful you kept that money invested when you retire. And that, Allison, is what's up. This episode of Motley Fool Answers is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. So you've done a ton of research on a trade, but you can't decide if you want to go through with it. TD Ameritrade's Trade Desk might be the secret to figuring it all out. Just go to tdameritrade.com slash trade desk to see how they can help gut check your trades. Member SIPC. Also, thanks to Sprout for supporting Motley Fool Answers. What makes people love the brands they love? In a word, connection. And social media is where you look for that connection. Sprout Social gives businesses a unified solution to find, engage, and nurture their audiences through social. In one intuitive platform, see and respond to every message, join the conversations happening around your brand, and turn rich social data into actionable insights. More than 25,000 organizations around the globe use Sprout Social to create 
real connection. No matter the size of your organization or the scale of your social efforts, Sprout has you covered when you need to deliver and measure valuable content, learn deeper insights about your audience, and nurture relationships with your customers. To learn how your brand can create real connection, visit SproutSocial.com today. That's SproutSocial.com. Dow bleeds overnight on 50% chance of Trump trade deal failure. Money managers are bracing for a sharp fall. And some guy on Twitter was copying Enter Sandman by saying, Exit light, enter night, take my hand, we're down 600 points again. These are just some of the high low lights from the last week of insane volatility. And at the time of recording this, the SP has had a wild ride. It's up at about, or I guess it's at about 2,800, up 300 points year to date, but down about 100 from its high. And as you're listening to this, I can only guess what sort of dystopian economic wonder hell you're living in three days later. So joining us in the studio today, actually just me, is Morgan Housel, who's going to offer up his calming words and advice. That was that was so dramatic. You did a good job setting the scene. I know! It's tense! Of how not to react to these news Oh, stories. it's tense! Like, how can you do it? How, I mean, because I think about people like my dad, who watches the news. He doesn't necessarily care about finance. But when you just casually watch the news, and then suddenly you see headlines like, Set your hair on fire! The market's down 300 points! Then my dad's like, oh, well, it sounds like I should set my hair on fire. They say the market's... But then when you're like, well, 300 points really isn't that much these days, blah, 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 blah. There's this thing, like, every time the Dow falls at least 500 points. CNBC does a segment called Markets in Turmoil. And there's always this thing like on Twitter where it's like, okay, we're going to do this Markets in Turmoil segment again. And it's just like an indicator of the panic that goes on. It's almost mm-hmm. like there's just this song and dance that goes on when the market falls. And Allison, how many times do you think... So I, I, I first joined The Fool... Uh, in 2007. How many mm-hmm. times do you think you and I have done a podcast before? Oh my to, gosh. To talk about market volatility? Uh, 30? Let's say. <laughs> We've done it a few times. 15? A lot over the years. But it's time well spent. But I think it's interesting that these kind of this kind of volatility, these kind of declines happen so frequently. But every time it happens, there is this reaction within headlines, within, you know, in, within uh, you know, how investors react. And it's not, it's not a bad thing. It's not a criticism of how the media reacts. I just think it's an inherent part of investing that this is, these declines, no matter how frequent they are, even if the de- kind of declines that we've had in the last month is the kind of thing that we've had three or four times a year mm-hmm. going back forever, it's still going to be, it's still going to feel way worse than it should when it happens. And I always say like, yeah, the Dow fell, you know, a thousand points last week, which is the first time it's happened since the last thousand point decline that you don't remember anymore. Yeah. These kind of things happen all the time. And I think the proper framing for big volatility like this is, you know, there's a cost of admission for big market returns. If you want big returns over the long term, those don't come for free. You have to pay a price to get those. And the cost of admission for markets is, of course, volatility. And there's two ways to look at that. You can look at it as a fee or a fine. A fee is you're paying the cost of admission, and it's a it's a good trade. You're putting you're you're paying the cost, but you're getting something great in return. A fine is you're not supposed to pay that. You're not supposed to get fine. You're supposed to avoid fine, so you try to avoid it. And I think viewing volatility as a fee instead of a fine is the proper way to think about it. You're this is the cost that you're paying to do really well over time, but it's not a fine. You're not in trouble. You didn't do anything wrong. You don't have to avoid this. You don't have to feel guilty for dealing with this volatility. It's not a fine. It's just a fee that you're paying. You're just getting the bill. You're getting your quarterly bill. <laughs> to get long-term returns over time. That's what these you know, these volatility kind of spikes that we deal with every quarter, I think, mean for investors. 
All right. Well, let's talk specifically about the recent market volatility. I did a little bit of my homework. I think it's because trade war, retail sales. Like, what's causing the recent market volatility? I think whenever there's an attempt to say the market fell because of X, it's a dangerous path that you're going down. Sometimes it can be fairly obvious. The best example is in 2008 during the financial crisis, Congress voted down the bank bailout, and within seconds the Dow went from up 500 points to down 900 points. Like that, you can say, okay, the market fell because of X. Yeah. Most of the time, I think it's very difficult. To pinpoint why the market's falling. If we want to say that the market is, you've had volatility in the last week because of the trade wars and developments between China and the United States, I think that makes a lot of sense. And two things come from that. One is that when the market has done very well, as it has over the last ten years, and valuations are high, things are just much more sensitive to even a little bit of bad news. So even if there's a tiny news story that people didn't expect, investors didn't expect, even the tiniest sliver of bad news can send the market tumbling. That's not the case if you go back to March of 2009 when valuations were low, and even though bad news was coming in day after day, unemployment was high, people were being laid off, there's bad news everywhere. The market was surging day after day. So it's just how markets react to news is just in context of their current valuations, and valuations are really high right now. The other point is that most recessions, most big economic events, are not economic events. They're not financial events. They're political events. And I think that's hard for investors who say like, oh, I, you know, I, I like investing, but I'm not into politics. I think that's a fine mindset. But most recessions are political events. And so the causes of, of recessions tend to be political events, whether it's from the federal government or the Fed. They tend to be that tends to kind of be the trigger of most recessions. So, you know, when we when you look at something like like a trade war, you know, the, the economy is doing really well right now and has a lot of things going for it. But if you if you look at it through the context of most recessions are caused by political events, and that's not a that's not a partisan statement. I think that goes on both sides. And、uh, you know. Just thinking, what is going to cause the next recession? Could it be something like a trade war? It certainly doesn't help. So you put those two things together: just the high valuations and then the historic triggers of recessions and downfalls. And I, you know, if I had to think or if I had to make an explanation for why the market has been choppy lately, it would be that. So I think with some of our listeners, they have an interest in. I don't want to get too much in exactly how the sausage is made, but I think some of our our listeners have an interest in actually knowing, like. How the market works, and how like what is actually happening here when someone buys a stock, buys a stock, or sells a stock, and so in these moments of volatility, is it how I picture it is a bunch of bros on Wall Street yelling sell, sell, sell. But I mean, that's just me and my my watching Wall Street movies. And,、um, and that was 100 true as recently as 10 years ago. It's completely not true whatsoever anymore.、Mm -hmm. If you look at pictures of the New York Stock Exchange today, where it used to be the bros yelling "sell, sell, sell,"、mm -hmm. that today is you know it used to have literally let's say a thousand people on the floor. If you go back to the '80s, which was probably the peak of the human trading era, it's probably a thousand people on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. You go there today, and it's twenty people, nineteen of whom are CNBC anchors. <laughs> right. I mean, it's really it's all been digitized now. And so much of it still occurs kind of at the New York Stock Exchange and in buildings in New Jersey and New York, but it's all digitized. And you know, I, I think that 
that doesn't necessarily change the function of markets. Things happen faster than they used to, but I think markets are still fairly efficient right now. You can point to like the flash crash in 2010, where the computers went crazy and the market fell 10% or something, whatever. But you also had in 1987, which was still heavily dominated by human traders, the market fell 27% in one day. And that was during an era where it was still human traders, whatnot. So I think the markets are fairly efficient right now, even if it's just a bunch of computers yelling at each other. <laughs> There's a bunch of crazy stories about the functioning of markets uh, and how they've evolved over the last year to where it's all computerized trading. And my favorite example is there's two office buildings in New Jersey that account for the majority of stock trading in the United States. It's where a lot of hedge funds and high-frequency trading offices house their servers. And so that's where these that's where the trading takes place. There are these undescript buildings unmarked because they're you know, high security. Yeah. If you're a terrorist looking to take out the American economy, that's the building you want. But within these servers... Uh, High-frequency trading became so competitive that uh, there was a, a fight for the servers to locate. To, for, there's a fight between high-frequency traders to locate their servers closest to the end of the building that was like near the cables that exited the building, because they were dealing with such small periods of time. They're literally called them picoseconds, which is, I think a billionth of a second wow. that they were fighting over. That the amount of time it took for like the light to travel through the cable to their server, they would have an advantage if their server was a little bit closer to uh, you know, where the cables came out of the building. So they were fighting for space within the building or where to locate the buildings. That's how competitive it became. And then there were literally companies that they wanted uh, the shortest cable connecting their computer because if they had a long cable, it would take an extra picosecond for the light to travel through the long cable to reach their server. So they wanted like the shortest cables possible. I think that just like sums up the extent to which it's become competitive down to this level of time that is like literally this astronomical period of time mm -hmm. that's hard to wrap your head around. But I think for day-to-day -day investors, for most people listening to this, it doesn't have a big impact. But the structure of the market in terms of how trades are actually executed uh, has changed so much in the last 10 years. But that's true, I think, at the institutional level for hedge funds and mutual funds and whatnot. Most people listening to this, if you are... Uh, an individual investor and you want to go buy 10 shares of Amazon and you log into your E-Trade account and you want to buy 10 shares of Amazon, there's probably another investor in E-Trade who wants to sell 10 shares of Amazon. And so that trade is quote-unquote internalized at E-Trade. It doesn't go to the New York Stock Exchange. It mm. doesn't. E-Trade just takes care of it right, right there. They have enough customers that they can just swap it right then and there. So for most of your trades, for people listening to this, that's how your trade takes place. It never even leaves your brokerage account. It just takes place within you're trading with another E-Trade customer or another TD Ameritrade or Schwab customer. But the stuff that's taking place, if you want to go buy a million shares of Amazon, that's where you have the computers screaming at each other, fighting over picoseconds. Which is insane. Like, as an individual investor, I can't fight over picoseconds, no. right? So, what is what is your best advice? I have a feeling I know what your best advice is for individual investors, but but let's hear it. I think, well, the, the way to contextualize this, I think, is back in 2010, when there was the flash crash, which if you weren't investing back then, it was a period where out of the middle of the nowhere, uh, the market fell like 10% and then recovered instantly. It was just this flash crash. And uh, we did a bunch of investigation at The Molly Fool uh, at the time, just a big research report on what happened and how it happened and how it impacted investors. And we set out at the time to find an individual investor who was harmed by the flash crash. And we couldn't find one. Mm -hmm. We could not find a single person who was actually a victim of this day. The market fell 10% and then rebounded immediately. Uh, and who was, who was harmed by that? And the answer was hardly anyone. If you had kind of like a standing stop loss order, you may have been harmed by it. But other than that, this was just something that if you were a long-term investor 
or even if you were a short-term investor and you didn't happen to be logged into your brokerage account during this like five-minute period when this happened, it didn't matter. It wasn't that big a deal. Mm -hmm. And I think that's true for when you're thinking about high-frequency trading and the function of markets and even to the extent that the function of markets has increased volatility relative to where it used to be, which, which some people think, I, I don't think the evidence is that great for it. But for most investors, the answer is it doesn't matter. It doesn't make much difference to you whatsoever. And even if what's going on behind the scenes are computers fighting over picoseconds, for you, the investor who's going to hold Amazon shares for the next 10 years, it doesn't make any difference whatsoever. So I remember three, four years ago, maybe even longer when you were here at The Motley Fool, um, we were in the middle of a glorious bull market. We still are. But at the time, even then, like, I don't know, three, four, five years ago, everyone was like, oh, this has been going on a little bit too long. And I remember you were very honest about how you were building up your cash reserve and you had more on the side. And since then, the market has continued to just go up another bajillion percent. I right. don't know exactly. That's roughly right. It's roughly, it's about right. It rounds to a bajillion. Yeah. So I wanted to hear your thoughts, kind of looking back on that, and and I'm not and I'm not here to be like you made the wrong decision. Oh, that's how it's coming off. Well, that's, that's how it's coming off. <laughs> I'm kidding. But the point is, is that this was um, this was this this was the decision you made um, a few years ago. You would have made more money had it been in the market than it wasn't. But yep. okay, fine. How do you how, like? How do you look back on some of your decisions and think? No, that was actually that was the, still still the right move because I was able to sleep well at night. For yes. example, yes. So I think there's two things to bring up. One is the strategy for the big cash position is a matrix that when the market falls by X, I'm going to invest Y percent of my cash. So if the market falls 10 percent, I'm going to invest this percentage. If it mm-hmm. falls, if it goes, if that loss goes to 20 percent, I'm going to put in more. So during that time, if we go back to say let's 20 say 2015, the market has had two 10% declines, and one 20% decline. So during that period, I have invested, I have drawn down portions of that mm-hmm, cash. Mm-hmm. I've been saving more cash as well, which brings to the, the second point, which is that, and this is how it works for me. I think for a, a lot, maybe even most investors, they would not agree with this statement. But this is, I gets back to the point of like personal finance is more personal than it is finance. Mm-hmm. My goal for investing has always been not to maximize returns. It's to maximize for how well I sleep at night. Mm-hmm. And so when I look at the economy and it growing for 10 years, which I think just leads to a complacency about the odds of the next recession. If you look at a bull market that is now 10 years old, which also leads to, I think, just an overall complacency of the odds that it could have another crash or the fragility that could send it into another crash. I feel totally fine with the amount of cash that I have on hand. And I've invested, you know, I've made three big transactions during big periods of volatility, the latest of which was the end of 2018 when the market fell 20%, where I was able to put more cash to work. Would I have earned more if if I had a time machine and I can go back? And I just invested all of my cash in 2015. Not taking account how well you would have slept at night. Right, which is a big thing. But let's let's leave that aside. Would I have earned higher returns? Yes, of course. But I think you can. There's too many of those situations as investors to say if I could go back in time and do X, I would have been better off. If I go back in time, I would have bought Amazon when I was 16 years old. We could do this all day. (laughs) We could. But but even with even with that, I I have zero regrets about it. But I totally understand. I have this conversation with investors a lot who don't understand that position. And I'm done. I, I've n- I never wanted. I, I don't see that as a debate because if it works, if something else works for them, I think that's great. But this is what works for me and my family. So yeah. back off. <laughs> <laughs> Morgan Hassel digging in, doubling down on his bad decision. 
No, I don't. I don't think that at all. Um, I mean, I remember at the time uh, that was that was a controversial take yeah. because everyone here at the Motley Fool is like, you should just be fully invested all the time because the market is always awesome. Well, and even when it's not, it's awesome. Here's another thing, like to get like wrap this into the personal context of how everyone's. This is how people make investment decisions, not on a spreadsheet. They make them like at the dinner table, mm-hmm. talking with their family about what works. If you go back to 2015, let's say, I had a newborn. My wife wasn't working. We just bought a house. It was a period in which if I was looking at my financial life, it would have made a lot of sense to say, I'm not in a position to take as much risk right now mm-hmm. as I might in a different portion of my life. So if you are a Motley Fool member who is in their 50s or 60s and their kids are moved out and they you know, have a, a much more substantial net worth than I did at the time in 2015, then it might make a lot of sense, which I think just gets to the point of there's no one-size-fits-all answer in, in investing, which is hard to do if you're going on TV or writing an article or doing a podcast where you want to give one-size-fits-all advice because there's a lot of people listening to this and you just want to say, here's what you should do. And they want to hear, what should I do? They just tell hear, me what to do. They want to hear the one answer. Yeah. But the, I think the hard answer, but the truthful answer is it, it depends on who you are. It depends on where you are in life. It depends on what your goals are, your risk tolerance, what your future cash flow needs are going to be. Like There's so many different variables. Yeah. All right, well, let's move on from market volatility because another thing that's been going on lately in the markets is IPOs. Um, most notably, Ubers, which I hear was a huge failure. Dun, dun, dun. And my response to that is like, I'm always like, a failure for who? It always depends right. on who who that person is, like what your perspective on whether it's a failure or not. So, how, what do you think about the recent IPOs? I think what's interesting, uh, and this is a big historical anomaly if you compare a long history of IPOs, is the percentage of companies that are going public in the last few years that are not profitable and have basically have no prospects for profits. That's, that is not normal. <laughs> yeah, right. But the percentage of companies that are in that situation over the last few years is rounds to most, it's most of them. And you look at companies like Uber or Lyft, which we are investors at a collaborative fund, or Blue Apron or Snap, all these companies that are going public, they don't have any prospects for profitability and they are just cash incinerators. Mm-hmm. And I think an important dynamic that's taken place is in the last decade, the VC and private equity industry has grown enormously. It's now literally trillions of dollars, in which 20 years ago it was a fraction of that, which has made it so that private companies can stay private for longer. So in a different era, uh, you know, if you go back to the 90s, let's say, Uber and Lyft and Airbnb and Palantir and SpaceX, all these companies would have gone public way earlier than they either are today or some of those companies are not even public yet. They would have gone public years and years ago when they were just out of the, you know, the garage startup phase. Once they got a little momentum, traditionally, that's when you went public. Whereas today, these companies are staying private for a long time and they're backed by venture capital funds and private equity funds that tend to, those type of investors tend to have much more tolerance for losing money, for, for the, the companies losing money, for net operating losses at the company level. And therefore, by the time these companies go public, like when Uber goes public, or you know, if it's going to be Airbnb or Lyft or whatnot, these companies are big, established, 10-year-old, deca-billion-dollar companies. But they, in terms of their internal financials, their operating losses, they're looking like brand-new startups that are just bleeding money all over the place. And public markets don't have the appetite for that. So it's this really weird dichotomy where you have these companies like Uber that, when they're backed by venture capital funds... Look, they're doing great, and VCs will give them all the money they want. And then the moment they become public companies, public investors look at their balance sheet and their income statements and say, what the heck is this? <laughs> right, the, right. This is not a business. 
you know, you look at something like Uber and Lyft, which I, I have to keep saying we're investors in Lyft. So this is not, you know, necessarily a, a criticism of the investors who back these. It's just the reality of where we're at. Every Uber and Lyft ride you take, investors cover a third of the cost of that ride. They, they, they just lose money on wow. every single ride. Wow. And that is not something that if you went back before the late 1990s would have ever been acceptable. Yeah. And I think there's a big difference between a great product and a great business. And a lot of these companies are great products. They're amazing products, but they're not good businesses. That's the reality of it. And if you look back, into, just to contextualize the extent to which that did not used to be true, Michael Dell uh, from, from Dell Computers posted last year the income statement that he used uh, for when Dell Computer was one year old, when he was running it out of his dorm room at the University of Texas, I think it was. This is literally a dorm room company. Not even like He hasn't even graduated to the garage, garage yet. Yeah. This is dorm room. <laughs> and he had 20% net profit margins. And the extent, like there, I, I honestly don't think there's a single well-known startup today that has that. Yeah. And that was when he was operating out of his dorm room. Yeah. But I think that was expected back then. It, it was, if you go back to that era, if you had a business, the idea that, of course you're going to be profitable. Like that's a, you're not a business unless you're profitable. Yeah. And, and that, and so it's a very different, you know, just kind of expectations today at the VC level. And I don't know if that's a, a bad thing. I think it's too early to tell whether that's a bad thing because companies that don't have to focus on quarterly profits these days can focus more on really building out a great product and whatnot. But it has, there has to be some balance on the other side. And when these companies go public, like, like Uber and Lyft have recently, they realize that that other side is completely different than the side in which they've lived in for the previous decade. Yeah. I, while I was looking for the Doomsday article headlines today, um, one of the big ones was that uh, Beyonce made, was going to make a ton of money off of Uber. Did you see this? I, I read this this morning. I read. I only she, read the headline. Smart. So, there's, so she, there's two parts of this. Okay. One, and I, I granted, I think the source of this might it, it didn't look like the most reputable source, but it's a good story, so let's run with yeah, it. Yeah, we should absolutely run with it. So the, I, I read the headline and I thought, no wonder Uber's not profitable. They offered Beyonce six million. That was to, my thought too. Right. That's, that's that's what actually made me think like that doesn't sound right. Okay, that doesn't sound. But so, let's but let's run with it. A lesson apparently, in reading beyond the headline. <laughs> apparently, Beyonce performed for Uber in I think 2013, and they paid her six million dollars, and she opted to take the payment in stock. And that stock is now worth three hundred million. Smart move. The other, so that I, I honestly, I have like fifty percent faith that that's accurate. Mm-hmm. But let's let's go with it. Okay. The other story that I, I know is accurate is that Beyonce performed at Coachella last year. Mm-hmm. Her fee for that was eight million dollars. Jeez, wow. But she said instead of taking the eight million, she said, "I don't want eight million. Just give me the rights to the video. I'm going to record this performance. Oh, okay. And, and that's mine. Yeah. That's my compensation. She sold those rights to Netflix for sixty million dollars." Like you hear these stories, and it's like these are these are very smart people. Yeah, yeah. It's like she declined her eight million dollar fee and ended up making sixty million off. Yeah, of it. I mean, what's she gonna do with another eight million? Right? Like, it's, I'll, it's, t- I'll make even more off it's of it. Amazing. I love the stories of the people who end up making more money from like these side businesses than they do from their actual careers. Michael Jordan, you know, made so much more money from Nike than he ever did from basketball. Mm-hmm. Shaq is another person who's made so much money from like investing his basketball earnings than he did from basketball. And then you have other people like Jay-Z and Beyonce and whatnot that make a fortune outside of their inherent, you know, their day jobs. How do I invest in Beyonce? Can I get some equity in Beyonce? Did she IPO? She should go she should IPO. She should she should go public. I would totally invest Beyonce in Bank. because she's very profitable. Yes. <laughs> More than, more than all these companies. 
All right, Morgan. Well, thank you for joining us again. Thanks for having me. If you listeners want more Morgan, and I know you do, head to collaborativefund.com. Morgan is uh, your partner at the Collaborative Fund, and you also write for them. Is that accurate to say you're a partner? Let's like the Beyonce headline. Let's just run with it. He's there. He's with Collaborative Fund. Head there, and you can read all of his articles. Also, follow him on Twitter. He gives good Twitter, so there you go. At Morgan Housel, is that what you are on Twitter? That's right. There you go. M-O-R-G-A-N-H-O-U-S-E-L. Morgan, thanks again. Thanks for having me. Well, that's the show. It's edited volatilely by Rick Engdahl. Hey, drop us a line. We're at answers at fool.com. We have a mailbag episode coming up. I believe Emily is going to be joining us again. I believe so. So great. She was great last time. I'm really excited to have her back in the studio. Uh, So, yeah, send us your questions about investing. That's really going to be her sweet spot. I guess Bro can answer your questions about other stuff. We'll see. See if I feel like it. (laughs) Whatever you have to. (laughs) Whether you like it or not. This is a ride or die situation on Motley (laughs) Fool Answers. We are all stuck in this together. Uh, All right. Well, for Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Bye.